This meeting's being recorded. It is being recorded, which means we have done the most important part of our job already. So we can just kind of like goof off the rest of this interview, right? Sort of like we usually do. Yeah, it's going to be even worse today, too, <laughs> given who our guest is. Oh, who is our guest today? What sort of person would allow us to goof off at leisure? The kind of person who stayed at your house as well as I stayed at your house and three other people all stayed at your house at once. And I believe, if I remember correctly, this person slept near your fireplace and made good friends with an annul who was also living in your fireplace at the time. That's right. Anyway, have we actually said our guest's name yet? No, we shouldn't. I have a lovely intro here. You do? I was so impressed that you wrote this. Well, I just copied and pasted it from his website, meh, honestly. Meh. But it was more effort than I put in, so. But what I noticed on some other podcasts is a better introduction of people with their social media handles up front so that while we talk at each other, people can just find them on Twitter and then ignore what we're saying on their podcast. So yeah, Dr. Kissel, Dr. Mark Kissel, who will affectionately call Mark most likely, is an assistant professor of anthropology at Appalachian State University. His specialties are the evolution of modern humans and processes by which hominins became human, the evolutionary arc of human warfare, which is what I think we're going to spend much of today talking to him about, Neanderthal behavior, quantitative genetics, computer modeling, which I may at some point ask him about if I want to thoroughly bore everyone except myself because I want to know about his computer modeling, semiotics, which I always forget what it means, paleoanthropological theory, and Mark is super active on social media, as I alluded, and can be found, I believe, at Mark Kissel on Twitter, M-A-R-C-K-I-S-S-E-L. And he is a good friend of both of ours. Even though this might come off as biased because we are good friends with Mark, he may honestly be one of the nicest people in our field. He's also someone who is incredibly dedicated to pedagogy and works really hard at reaching his students and being a compassionate educator, as well as lots of fun outreachy stuff too. And so as I warned Mark, and we should warn the listeners, this could very well be a winding and absurd episode because we're such good friends with Mark. Yeah, that's why we have editors. Let me bring him in from the waiting room now so he can, he can join the rambling and stream of consciousness. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the Sausage of Science, Mark Kissel. You have been named on this show probably more than anyone else, right, Chris? <laughs> what did we name him? What did we name him? Mark Kissel. And we say it with disdain. But literally, he gets name dropped in like every third episode, I feel. I always wonder if folks are going to start tuning out and think we have like a sort of friend club or that we just talk to people we know, but it turns out what we've found is the discipline's somewhat small. What? Um, really? Once you get into it, you sort of meet everyone. Part of the objective, I think, is to knit that together. Hmm. I find my students are often impressed that I know people who we read about, like the, the papers. And I keep on telling them, yeah, it's only because I've been doing this for such a long time that eventually you do meet these people. I mean, it's kind of the benefit of anthropology, right? And literally, like once or twice a year in the before times, we all gathered together and get drinks and bars and go out to eat. So yeah, we're always crossing paths. Anyway, so Mark, finally, as you have been talked about on the show dozens of times, we are super excited to actually welcome you on to chat with us today. I'm kind of like Beetlejuice, like you say my name three times and I'll show up. Well, then you are super tardy because we have said your name far more than three times. <laughs> <laughs> 
we have truancy issues with Mark Kissel. We gave a little intro before you jumped on, and it's basically culled from your website. But I want to give an opportunity for you to say in your own words, how do you present yourself when you talk to students, for instance? What's your expertise for them, for listeners who aren't attuned to let's say, computer modeling, <laughs> quantitative genetics, semiotics. How do you represent yourself? Yeah, I mean, obviously it depends who I'm talking to, right? How yeah. I'm kind of who I am. For my students on the first day of class, you know, I don't honestly talk much about myself, but if they would ask, I would say something like, I want to know what makes us human. How do we become human? What does it mean to be human? And as a biological anthropologist who looks at the remote past, looking at these questions of how did knowing what we became human and how we became human and the processes, how does that help affect us today? What is the relevance of human evolution to sort of modern day life? And then I study that with, in very, very different ways over my career. I've just been lucky enough to, have to pull from different threads of this really, I think, fascinating field. And so talking about that, that you do have all of these really awesome different threads in your work that you draw on. And you really do have your hands in lots of different pots within anthropology, both modern and, you know, paleoanthropology as well. So how did that come about? Tell us the origin story of Mark Kissel and how he got into anthropology and decided to pursue it as a career. I'll guess that my story is not that different than many folks in anthropology in that as a young kid, you know, I had no idea what anthropology was. I didn't know it was a thing. My mom, who I later learned wanted to be an archeologist, she loved science, so she'd drag us to the museums. We didn't have cable, so we watched PBS all the time. Where did you grow up, Mark? So just we have an idea of like what kind of museums? Westchester County outside of New York City, so. Okay, so really great museum access. (laughs) Exactly. Again, like I didn't realize at the time, like many kids, how lucky I was to have the American Museum of Natural History, like an hour from where we lived. And again, like many people got to college, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, thought maybe science journalism would be fine because I, I liked science, but didn't really think I could be a scientist. And my sophomore year, I think, I finally had finished my gen eds, opened up some space. I'm like, oh, I'll take archeology span because that sounds cool. No idea that it was, like, it was in anthropology, couldn't find it in the course bulletin. I'm old enough that it wasn't all online, so I had to go through and find this field somewhere. And I will never forget the first day of class, uh, Pam Crabtree, who studies Anglo-Saxon archeology, span she walked in and it was the first time in my life I realized that people can get paid to do what they love because she clearly like loved this thing, right? She was so excited about the job. And it was this sort of dawn that all these people I watched before went to the museums they were getting paid for it. Cause I mean, like many people, I come from a working class family, right? Academia wasn't anything I knew about. I didn't know that grad school was a thing. I didn't know that faculty members were, were doctors, right? So like it was just opening up to this new world. And yeah, then it was just a series of like fortunate events that sort of led me to where I am now, which I probably should say. So I'm a, I'm a faculty member at Appalachian State University in uh, Boone, North Carolina. So we're sort of in the Appalachian mountains as the name implies. So sort of a beautiful, nice place to live. Not the Appalachian State or the Appalachian Mountains as I mispronounce them, is that right? So I'm told it's Appalachian and apparently it's a really big thing here to say it Appalachian. You know, so I'm trying to sort of get with the program, so to speak. So do people correct you? Yes, 
Interesting. Another story I could share was when I, my first college class ever was very hesitant to talk, but they asked a question. I knew the answer was, you know, paradigm shift, right? So I said this word, but I had never heard it pronounced, only read it in books. And I called it paradigm shift, like how it's sort of spelled, right? And the faculty member mocked me for like two minutes. And I never spoke again in college for two years, right? So certainly I have hesitation to correct people, but around here it is sort of, I think, a, a source of pride, I think. I'm really glad that you shared that story. I was actually thinking of asking you to share that story, but I actually told that story, though not with your name, to a student just yesterday who was a freshman and she is working with me on a research project and she's like, I have a really, really dumb question. And of course it wasn't a dumb question. It's the that exact same kind of situation that she had never had this experience or exposure to something. And you know, she got really nervous asking it. And I immediately thought of your story and shared it. And it reminds me again of how important your work with pedagogies of care and being a compassionate educator are, especially these times. And we might touch on it a little bit later, but I do want to bring up how amazing of an educator you are and how you truly think deeply about your students and their experience both in and outside of your classroom. And so I'm going to promote you because I know you don't like self-promotion. I appreciate that. Honestly, I just try to be the faculty member that I wish I had. And I did have a lot of nice and supportive folks. And yeah, I mean, you just want to make the world better, right? You want to remove those barriers that were in place. And I've just been lucky now to be in a position where I can do that. And then so you went from that undergrad experience, which had a rocky start because of rude faculty members. And then you decided to pursue a PhD. Tell us about that. We know who you worked with, but why don't you talk us through? So this is the problem that Chris and I know a lot about you, but our reader or <laughs> listeners might not know yeah. anything, so. Yeah, I don't know how many people are like, want to know the back backstory, right? But yeah, so I went to grad school at Madison, Wisconsin. So from New York City, Manhattan to like Madison, big cultural shift. I did what you probably shouldn't do, which is like about halfway through my graduate career, switched advisors for reasons that are complex and not really relevant to uh, John Hawks, who at the time was doing a lot more sort of genetics and population genetics and thinking about Neanderthal genomes. Now he's best known for being associated with the Homo Naledi project. I graduated just as that was starting. So like the worst possible timing, like I could have been chillaxing in uh, rising star cave. I switched to John late in my grad school career and, you know, did stuff with Neanderthal genomes. I was interested in quantitative genetics and the, the question of what was making Neanderthals look like Neanderthals. So selection and drift hypotheses like that. And honestly, like I kind of figured that would be my career. I lucked out that while in grad school, I got a job working at a community college, which I loved. And I was not tenure track, but there was, you know, inevitable like, oh, maybe one day in the future, we will have a job for you. But then I sort of, in again, a series of really lucky events, managed to snag a postdoc at where Kara is now, though we didn't overlap. I, yeah, we never overlapped um, at Notre Dame working with uh, Augustine Fuentes. And that sort of sidetracked my initial plan of research, but also it gave me this ability to sort of do many different things, which I think is sort of the privilege of being an anthropologist, right? You don't have to just focus on one aspect of biological anthropology. I wanted to just sort of put a pin in what you said, and you teed up a nice sort of uh, low-hanging fruit question that comes from your pedigree, right? Which is John Hawks, as you noted, 
specialized in Neanderthals and Denisovans and now Homonoletti with Lee Berger, right? And that's when I met John was when he came and gave a talk around the Neanderthal stuff. But like Kara, who as an undergrad was trained with Milford Walpoff, John comes from the Milford Walpoff school. And so I have to ask you, and, and, and I'll just clarify this for our listeners, Milford Walpoff is famous for the multi-regional hypothesis, which when we teach introductory biological anthropology, we have these diametrically, falsely, mind you, opposed models of out of Africa versus multi-regionalism. So I sort of spoiled it already by saying it's not real, but I, I need to ask you where you stand as a John Hawk student on the out of Africa versus multi-regional model. So the joke answer, which I get from John Hawks, I'm going to give him credit for this because it was, I think, the best answer I ever heard, is a student once asked him in one of the lecture courses, you know, Dr. Hawks, you know, you're, you're a multi-regionalist, but everywhere I read says out of Africa is correct, so why don't you accept out of Africa? And John paused and said, well, because it's wrong, which is a very John answer, right? I think I, I don't have tenure yet, so I, I won't say that. You know, obviously I'm biased, right? I was trained by... John, who was trained by Milford, like Chris pointed out, right? I mean, even the people in these camps admit it's not an either or, right? And I don't know him that well, but from, you know, the few interactions, Chris Stringer, who was seen as like Milford's opponent, has, you know, moved more to the center and Milford as well, right? I mean, he's not promoting a single species hypothesis anymore. So like the things change. And I think, you know, the notion that we're sort of an either or just doesn't work. You know, again, like I happened to be in grad school when the Neanderthal genome came out. I mean, that was a pretty cool moment to be a multi-regionalist when we were being mocked the year before. We're like, uh-huh, this is exactly what we said. And it's not even Milford, right? People before him, right, was, was saying this thing. So it's not like there's also like these individuals who are doing this thing. There's multiple people. My short answer is, well, because multi-regionalism is the one that works. But certainly now, yeah, I mean, with Denise Evans, with so much complicated population genetics now, Becky Ackerman's work, I think that the notion that hybridization is key, to my mind, is almost, is where the field is going now, in, in my mind. No, that's a really great answer. And I think it's going to link well to what we actually want to talk to you about today. But having been a Milford student and those years leading right up to the Neanderthal genome coming out, but I had left undergrad just before that, it totally felt like we were the dorky kids who got made fun of for being the multi-regionalists. And so it's always nice to have a bit of vindication that there was totally hybridization going on. But part of, you know, the out of Africa model and even the assimilation model, which kind of combines the two to some extent, there's a lot of talk about anatomically modern humans coming in and like physically removing Neanderthals like through acts of say warfare or violence or other things like that. See, I'm drawing the line, Mark, drawing the line. Uh, and so this directs lately to a book that you had come out somewhat recently with your collaborator, Nam Kim. And the book is called Emergent Warfare and Our Evolutionary Past, which is part of the new biocultural anthropological series, which is edited by your postdoc advisor, Augustine Fuentes. So mm -hmm. lots of connections being made with things said earlier in this interview. This is how we like it, synergy. Anyway, so tell us about this book and how you got interested in warfare and what you actually mean by emergent warfare. Sure, so I'll say that the sort of book thing started before I was even Augustine's postdoc. So then it became even more weird that I was working with him in multiple like, capacities. Yeah, so I mean, the basic premise, if, if it interests students, maybe as to how I got into this field, right, which was not what I wanted to do. 
from someone who was outside looking in at the warfare literature, I didn't want to touch that because it seemed very acrimonious. And that's not my sort of style of academics. I got into it pretty much because, and I think a lesson to uh, grad students everywhere is, I went to one of these weekly seminars that was going to put on at Madison. And I went because one of my grad school colleagues has said, hey, you know, we're reading this article about Neanderthals. Do you mind showing up? Because I know you do that. So I showed up and I, the article had sort of hinted at maybe Neanderthal warfare being a thing. And in that room was Nam Kim, my co-author. He was, I think it was his first year as an assistant professor. And I was ABD, so I wasn't really around that much. I hadn't really spoken to him. We were talking about this article back and forth. Steven Pinker's book had just come out as well, or was maybe going to come out, but we knew about it. So we're talking about these issues. And afterwards, we all left. And I was like, that was kind of fun. So I emailed Nam and said, oh, I'm sorry for talking so much, but I had a good time. He's like, that was great. Let's do something more. Let's work on a paper. So what I probably shouldn't admit, but I'll say in a public setting now, is we worked on this paper. I, I met Augustine in this time frame at a conference. We said we were working on this paper. He's like, that's great. And it got rejected by a fancy pants journal that will remain nameless other than it was current anthropology. I mean, that right. current anthropology needs to learn some lessons because these things are getting mad press these days, so. I mean, it ended up being fine. In the long run, I thought, I would admit, not the best morning. So, you know, Augustine had said, hey, look, I'm starting this new series. Why don't you all think about writing a book? And I was like, I can't write a book. This is not what I do. But, you know, it was opening, I think, Maybe because, I mean, Nam is an archaeologist. He studies the ancient Vietnam and has a site that has ancient walls and maybe some signs of warfare, which is where his interest of in warfare comes from. And he was a Larry Keeley student, Larry Keeley being sort of like the godfather of uh, archaeology of war. So we had the sort of different perspectives coming in. And to answer Kara's uh, original question, after like, five minutes, right, is the term emergent warfare, we sort of played around with for a while. The point that we were trying to make is that there's dozens of definitions of war, right? And oftentimes the definition is going to affect how you see the literature or how you see the data. And, you know, this is warfare old or young, probably is partly based on how you define these terms. And we were trying to point out something that I don't think is inherently profound at all, but that it's not going to be a, a moment in time when warfare begins. And that modern warfare is Yes, very, very different. Warfare in ancient states is going to be different than what it would have been maybe in sort of a foraging populations, you know, 20, 10,000 years ago. But that doesn't mean it's not similar in the way it's presented. So we're trying to say, hey, look, let's think of it in an evolutionary time set, in a deep time, which wouldn't shock anthropologists, but, you know, most of the people who read about warfare are not anthropologists. So we were trying to sort of move the conversation forward in that vein to say, hey, look, let's take an evolutionary approach, which by definition is going to say, you're not going to be able to find that line in the sand, just like you're not going to find when anatomically modern humans show up, right? These are things that by definition are going to be tricky to define. So we try to find a way that we can still talk about warfare. And of course, we're biased as all, but like, you're trying to avoid that bias coming in. So if I may, just to sort of frame this. Your interview is going to come right after an interview we did with Jada Ben Torres and Gabrielle Torres, who also have a book in the same series, right? So, mm -hmm. and as far as I know, there are only three books in the series. Aaron Riley has a book in the series as well on ethnoprimatology. So from reading two out of the three books, what's clear is the new biocultural anthropology series is about developing or updating theory, 
in the field. And so this idea of emergent warfare that you've presented is presenting some robust theoretical directions for biological anthropologists and archaeologists to move forward to provide heuristic means of testing hypotheses about human evolution. I know that wasn't very articulate, but what I want to know is sort of like, what do you see as the outstanding questions or hypotheses generated by your book that we can look to going forward? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I I really appreciate that. The fact that I'm in the same series as Aaron Riley and Jada and Gabby, like, astounds me, right? And I haven't read uh, the latest book, and I hear really good things about it. Yeah, I mean, one thing that we sort of suggest, the book took a long time to come out for various reasons. The first draft we submitted right before Nataruk came out, which is a site about 10,000 years old, a little older, that shows signs of maybe warfare before it pre-states, right? And we kind of said that that's kind of thing we expect to see, right? Like, if the idea of emergent warfare is true, you should see signs, which we kind of do, of, you know, interpersonal violence, conflict existing in the deep past. Our sort of narrative arc, our theory, if you will, is that this is not because warfare is something that gives us a high fitness benefit and allows us to propagate our genes. Our theory is warfare and peacefare, as we talk about, are epiphenomenal of other issues, of if you want to call it symbolic thought of modern human behavior. I think theoretically what we would suggest is that we need to sidestep this notion that evolution is just about selection which again is probably a controversial thing to say, but also that we could find evidence of these massacres happening in the the deep past. It wouldn't suggest that we're violent by necessity, which I don't think we are innately violent or innately peaceful, but it would suggest that we should look for these signs, look for signs of uh, trade and exchange and gene flow. At the same time, we see signs of symbolic thought. At the same time, we see signs of maybe a more violence happening. So a couple of things with that is one, I don't actually think it is controversial, at least anymore to say like evolution is only natural selection. I think there's been such a big push in the past couple of years of let's look at drift, let's look at flow, uh, let's look at cultural transmission, all of those things. And so I think that's something that we need to be saying more openly in these sort of informal conversations for our listeners, because they might not know that, that selection is not the only force of evolution that's going on. So I'm really glad you brought that up. And then secondly, and you talk about challenging these ideas that humans are inherently violent, let's bring up Steven Pinker, your best friend. And for those at home listening, I'm using air quotes that Steven Pinker is Mark Kissel's best friend because yeah, I'm just gonna let Mark, I'm just gonna let you talk about your thoughts on Steven Pinker and his views on these things. <laughs> right. I mean, my interactions with Pinker have been interesting. And I mean, not like that he thinks about me a lot. Uh, my infamous interaction is my colleagues and I wrote a paper that got a lot of press. And what we were doing is kind of pushing back against one of Steven Pinker's narratives. His narrative being that we're living in the most peaceable time now, that violence has decreased because of states and sort of later on, he argued the enlightenment has made us more peaceable and that we're living the best ever has been is essentially his uh, model. It's more complex than that. I, I do want to say as well that he's an amazingly good writer. You, you can't not read his stuff and be amazed because he's such a good writer, very clear. And I do read all his stuff and I learned a lot from him, right? With that being said, one of the things that Pinker and others have pointed out about this warfare and aggression and violence getting less over time is that the number of people involved in war ha- has decreased. 
And this comes from Larry Keeley's work that, you know, in a foraging society, maybe 40% of the people will be involved in war, but in the city, only 1% would be. And that that's a sign that we become less violent. So my colleagues and I did something that, God bless my wife, when the paper got accepted, I explained to her what I was doing. She's like, of course, that's obvious. I mean, but our point was that there's a scaling issue here, right? If you live in a society of 100 people, 40%, which would be about 40, easily you can do that. If you have like 300 million, like we have in the United States, probably a little more than that, right? You can't have 120 million in the war. That's just not gonna be able to sort of sustain. You can't feed and clothe that people. That's kind of what all our point was, couched in a lot of fancy pants statistics. So when we published this, we didn't even mention Pinker by name. I think we might've cited him, but science being science journal, caught wind of the paper and interviewed Pinker. And he said, well, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. And that's all a statistical gimmick, which is now going to be on my gravestone. My criticism of him, and I think somebody who does good forward-facing work, is also he's not really an anthropologist. He's a linguist slash psychologist. And he's a very important, right? I mean, his books are read by policymakers and politicians. Bill Gates said his book was the best book ever written. So I think it is important to say that, well, yes, some of his stuff is good. He also really misrepresents a lot of the information out there, right? I mean, you know, to say that life is better now, well, better now for whom? He sort of says, well, structural violence can't be measured, so I'm not going to really look at it. No, structural violence being racism, sexism, classism, all these things we know are important now. And others have taken his views and said, well, look, this means racism is not really a problem now. Like not many people are racist anymore. So I think that that is kind of where I kind of get my tackles up because it makes sense. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm ranting, but it, it, you know, it makes sense that Bill Gates would like it. Like right? it's, it's a narrative of neoliberalism. It's a narrative of, well, yes, structural inequalities exist and the 1% owns so much crap, but it's better now than it was in the past. And I would say, we don't know, right? You know, Pinker said in one of his books that everyone lived in poverty before capitalism, which to me is a problematic thing to say, right? Or that he, in his newest book, he said, obesity is a good problem to have. Yes, it's a health problem, but it's a good problem to have. It comes like a basic misunderstanding of what is actually underlying these. The obesity well, one, for example, a lot of obesity is caused by extreme poverty and food deserts and really <laughs> shitty food that people have to eat because that's what's accessible. And so, no, I completely agree with you that a lot of his work and his opinions come from a place of extreme privilege and a lack of empathy and understanding of what's on the other side. And that's my only point, right? Is that like, yeah, I mean, food apartheid is what causes this SES issue of, of obesity, or partly, right? And I'm sure he knows that. But when you're driving a narrative, right, it becomes difficult. And I just worry, you know, Kara's point is fair. Like, yes, anthropologists, we know that selection isn't the only thing. But most books written about warfare are not written by anthropologists. They're written by politicians, political scientists. And they say humans and basically men are more aggressive and more violent because by being more aggressive and more violent, you get your genes to the next generation. And that's the narrative that I think we need to push back against because it's not just wrong. It's also, I think, dangerous. I like that point. And I also sort of, you got me thinking about matters of scale. And I think what Steven Pinker is doing is sort of what we're doing in the pandemic, which is as the numbers go up of daily deaths, 
right? If we think about this on a scale, like the daily deaths are commensurate, and I don't even know what they are today, but with like, say, I just happened to be listening to a Civil War podcast. So the Union's losses at the Battle of Gettysburg, which were historically large and almost resulted in the North saying this is too much death, right? And if we're talking about war, right? So like, there's the idea of how many people die in a war, which we, I think now, misconstrue as these vast numbers all the time, when in fact, many wars, if you killed a thousand people, you've lost most of your army. Mm-hmm. So like, it's easy for those of us in privilege to say 200,000 is not a lot because we have so many, unless that's your family, which is what we all keep sort of harping on. I guess in a selection paradigm or in an evolutionary paradigm, we're individual actors. Like reproductive success is up to each one of us. So it goes back and forth at different levels. And it sounds like Steven Pinker is almost sort of arguing from a meta level, not an evolutionary level. I mean, he thinks group selection is not useful. Like somebody, a science historian should write a paper on the history of these popularizers, right? Because Pinker, Dawkins, they're all part of the same group and they read the same stuff. And a lot of them are sort of have pretty uh, skeptical views of, of anthropology. But yeah, Chris, I mean, I would agree. I mean, as somebody who's published looking at death numbers of war to use to model these things. The problem is they only get that a small sliver, right? Usually they don't get people who died because of the famine that was induced by the war. They don't always get the people who died post the war. They don't get the people who are left homeless, right? The displaced peoples. So yeah, I think that that is another huge problem we need to think about. It's not just the soldiers on the field. And yeah, from the level of privilege, right? You can look at these numbers as just statistics. But I honestly have a hard time doing that because I keep thinking about the individuals who are out there. So many of my students are ROTC students. And I think about them as like, they're the ones doing the stuff, right? So for us in the ivory tower to say, well, it's better now, doesn't really help you if life sucks for you right now. Yeah, let me reinforce that with a sort of epiphany that I'm having right now based on the same podcast I listened to, which was that while the Union, quote unquote, won the Civil War, and this is the way this historian answered the question of when the dates of the Civil War, he said it was 1861 to 1865, according to the book, but the reality was it started a little bit older, and then the Reconstruction was a period of extreme violence that lasted at least a decade, and the South basically won the political battle of Reconstruction, and so we are actually still in the extended aftermath of the reconstruction and the structural violence on black bodies in the United States is still a cost being paid for that particular war. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come in here for a moment because I'm currently reading a book about the great migration, which is mm-hmm. black individuals moving across the country during reconstruction and immediately after it lasted several decades. And the book is called the warmth of other sons. And I highly, highly recommend it for those interested. I know this is like not your work mark, but that just made me think of it because I'm listening to it. It's also like a 22 hour long audio book, mm-hmm. but I recommend it as an audio book if you can. I actually have the book on my bookshelf right now. I've been slowly reading it, but yeah, it's a very long book. It is, but the narrative is beautiful. Oh, yeah. It, it reconstructs the world well. And I think it places exactly what Chris is saying, the context of the time to really help you understand a lot of the shit we see today. And so that historical context is still very, very present. But anyway, we need to get back to you. So you've had this awesome book on emergent warfare, but what are you doing now with your research? What is your focus on? 
Mm -hmm. So I have like, I guess, two streams of well, maybe three, depending upon how I count it. So one is the warfare stuff. Nam and I are sort of shopping around looking for a sequel to the book, right? It's gonna be more about peace. Because we had a chapter in on peace, we kind of got cut a little bit for length. But we want to talk about like the fact that it's not just war, right? Peace is also really important. And there's a number of really good books that have come out that also argue this. But we're trying to sort of also make the book more for the popular audience, right? What is actually known about these things? so that people who are not us can read it, which was the original aim of the book, though it got you know, a little bit sideways. Secondly, and this comes from my postdoc research, is sort of the origins of symbolic thought, or origins like what sometimes are called behaviorally modern humans, or whatever you want to call them, which I think is a really problematic term, as Kara mentioned before, right? The notion of anatomically modern humans and behaviorally modern humans moving out of Africa is, I think, kind of colonialist, because these notions that we're not human until we begin to like move out, is I think really problematic. So I've been working with my colleague, Augustine, who you mentioned before, to sort of study this question. What does it mean? What does symbolic mean? I, I know you've had Jeff Peterson on, so I'm not gonna get into the semiosis stuff, but part of my work has been sort of moving semiosis into paleoanthropology. And what does it mean to be a symbol? I spent my postdoc years trying to make a, a database of all the symbolic artifacts. And after two years of doing it, I kind of think it's good, but also like, I think, the term is probably problematic, much like, you know, species is problematic. So we have a new paper coming out that sort of look this as well. So I hope to push on that and do more work on this idea of what, what a symbol is. And then sort of as Carol alluded to at the very beginning, some of my work now is more based on pedagogy and like, how can we work with students? How do we work with low income students, with our students who are coming from first generation classes, who, you know, their six year graduation rate is much less than other students. So how can we help them? And the fact is that we know there's a lot of data out there, but how can we bring that into the anthropological world is my sort of third thing. And other things as well that I sort of keep myself busy with when I'm not teaching. Someone yeah, just told me those are called side quests. And I kind of like that terminology for the random projects we end up picking mm -hmm. up that we end up prioritizing and we totally should not. But yes, right. side quests. I'm lucky too that currently I'm at a university where I can do what I want to do, right? It's not an R1 where I have to worry so much about the type of research I do. As long as I do stuff, they're happy with me. So I'm curious, speaking of side quests, we have a series called Hackademics and you are one of the co-authors in a forthcoming two, mm -hmm. two, two articles. <laughs> yeah, two articles for Mark. <laughs> from Mark for the issue of American Journal of Human Biology that Karen and I are editing about hacks for succeeding in academia. So I wonder if you could speak just a little bit to that, like what sort of recommendations or programs or ideas might you suggest for someone who wants to improve six-year graduation rates for first-gen college students? Mm -hmm. This is something I think about a lot. I mean, I'm by no means an expert in it. This is part of the academics thing, right? Is the recognition that our students are not us, right? That the majority of people who go into academia do so because they were good at school. And they figured out whether it's like me, figured out eventually, or had people tell you right away how to win school, like the, the hidden curriculum. And the point is that we forget, because it's very easy to forget what you don't know, right? So to be clear, like, I'm, so I'm a white man, and I have a lot of privilege coming into the classroom, so it might be easier for me to not care about being called Dr. Kissel, but at least the very limited notion to realize that not everyone knows that, right? So when you're called not by your doctor so-and-so, to be just aware of why that is. Students don't think 
faculty or the doctors, because then doctors are medical doctors, right? Or to avoid doing things like saying, as you remember from biology class, this is how you do a Punnett square. Because we remember that. I don't know what you're talking about as someone who has never, ever said, as you remember from biology <laughs> class and skimmed the Punnett square. Very important stuff, the Punnett square. <laughs> I rarely do Punnett squares anymore. But like the point being that, and I don't mean this as a criticism because you don't think about it someone tells you, but you're losing the students who weren't in intro biology, right? Or the students who haven't, don't remember or non-traditional students. So I think that can help as well. Or just telling them, like, we can sit here and complain that students don't come to office hours. But most students don't even know what they're for. I didn't know what they were for, right? So, like, I call them student hours now, which is a silly thing. I don't think it makes a big difference. But at least to sort of point out the fact. I think just generally, like, letting the students know that we're there for them and that it's not adversarial, right? You know, the biggest problem, I think, in education is that it's seen as us versus them, right? Ferrer's idea of sort of, we're going to give them information, they're going to come back with it on the test, and that's what we're supposed to do. But most of us don't really do that, right? Jesse Stommel, who is a sort of a radical pedagogy guy, who I work I really enjoy, you know, he points out that if you look at any sort of college statement or university statement on their goals, it's never about ranking students, right? It's never what they want to do, yet we do that. So I think that, yeah, to help the students who are coming from not knowing about education or not knowing about school is be aware of that. With the caveat, I'll admit that it is really hard to always be that guy. It is exhausting, right? I definitely get the, hey, Dr. M, what's up? How are you doing? And like, sometimes it's exhausting and I do want to like rant, but then I tell myself, well, but that student doesn't know, you know, and it's the buy-in, right? People mock me all the time. I didn't know my first year and a half of grad school, you could write a paper without having a PhD, just because that wasn't something I knew about. You know, no one was telling me these things. And we just say, yeah, I think it's like just reminding ourselves that these are things that we know. And if we want anthropology to be better, we don't want to just teach us, right? We want to teach the student who's the C student or the D student who's back only there for the gen ed credit. And I tell them every year that I have no problem with that, right? I don't care. If you're in the class because you need that credit, God bless you, because there's something you're doing that's interesting and relevant. My job is to make you care. I want to, one, echo your point of students go through things as well. And I think this has been put in sharp focus with the pandemic in particular. Uh, but also, you know, remembering what we didn't know at that stage. So sharing that compassion with our students but also sharing what we have learned in that experience with our colleagues. And Mark, you and I and Pablo Nepomanchi, we had like a whole Twitter feed back and forth just a few <laughs> days ago or last week where we were sharing the pedagogical things where we have riffed off one another and shared our materials. And again, it's one of those things that it makes the feel of anthropology better when we don't hold on to these things. And I think you are really a wonderful example of somebody who is very giving both to his students but also to colleagues, you put up all of your materials up on your website. You are more than happy to share and talk people through it. And I think that's what makes the field so much stronger and a much better place for our future students, but also for us as well, because it creates a more supportive mm -hmm. community that we can work with and bounce ideas off of. I'll say that for those students listening who want to share these things and want to talk about what they're doing, like, it's hard. The hard part is, of course, that there's always going to be critics, right? There's always going to be people who tell you you're doing it wrong. I did something last year and it got covered in like this advent of hominin thing once a day. I talked about a hominin on Twitter. 
And like, I just did it for fun, right? It was a lot of work, but fun. And it was covered by like AAAS. And the first email I get is a criticism that I had the location wrong of, of one of the things. I mean, that's a middling point, right? But like, you're going to get critics, right? I, I, I think that when I first started admitting that I didn't grade, oh my God, the number of people who emailed me who said, that is stupid, don't do that. Or essays are ridiculous because you have to teach them to write. You're going to get that. Now, at this point, it's easier to deal with the criticism. But the, the point being, there is a welcoming community, right? There are folks who want to do this better, who do care. And most faculty do care. Right? I think even the faculty member who you might look at as being regressive, as being conservative in how they approach, they want to be good teachers, right? So I think we have to sort of open up these things. And yeah, I mean, sharing stuff. And the last thing I'll say about Kara's point reminded me that it's also true for students as well to share stuff, right? We have years, semesters of, of time to prep our classes, to find good projects. So why should students have to do a project in each class that's separate, right? I tell my students, take what you did last semester, last year, rejigger it, redo it and do it for me, but do it a new light or a new viewpoint. And collaboratively as well, like we don't do our work anymore in isolation, we are always collaborating with several other people. And so those are the kind of skills that should be developed early on with students too. Since my qualifying exam, I've never once written a paper without something in front of me, right? Yeah, I just want to echo for listeners who hopefully, for whom this sounds familiar, we interviewed Susan Bloom, with mm -hmm. whom Mark is going to be collaborating. And she has a new book coming out, or is just out on ungrading. And the ideas of the academic series have come from you, from Susan. So we've been talking about this now for a few years and I just want listeners to know this is all sort of out there. And while I joke about the Punnett Square, it's because I'm a kindred spirit and trying to implement similar things. Like right now I'm having the crisis of grading of, should I have forced my grad students to have a final exam instead of just writing a book review together for publication, which now that I'm hearing you, I'm thinking like I did the right thing, but I'm also worrying that they didn't do enough work and there's not <laughs> enough of a proof of their knowledge for me to show my peers. So there's tensions in both directions. Yeah, I mean, I I'll say about the ungrading thing. You're good. Yeah, I mean, I have students who don't like it at first because they're learned, they're taught that education is about grades. And when you remove that, the whole thing begins to collapse, right? And it's really hard for students, especially because they're so used to having the rug pulled out from under them. They don't believe me, right? When I say, I don't believe in grades. They don't believe me when I say, if you don't get the thing done on time, I don't care because honestly, I often am late on things and no one's ever failed me. Like, if, I'm, if we're laying up peer review, we might get the editor to say, hey, what up? But it's not going to really hurt, right? So yeah, I think in terms of, what, Chris, what you pointed out, you know, I've had colleagues say, well, but students have to know this stuff. And my response is, well, you know what? Two to three years after the fact, after a class, students forget 75% of what they were forced to learn on an exam. So we're sort of misconstruing the point of learning, the point of college. It's to teach you how to do these things, have these skills that you're going to take outside of college, right? I don't think outside of college, anyone's graded, very rarely. But what you are asked to do is self-assess. And that is really hard. 
I have my students self-assess their work. They don't like doing it. And I tell them, yeah, I know, I hate it. When my chair of my department asks me, I'm, I'm so bad at it. But I think that's a, a useful learned skill. Personally, I do not think it's useful for students to know Artipithecus's cranial capacity. Nor do I think, and I admit this amongst friends, I don't even really do transcription and translation in BioAnth anymore. If you have to know that, you're gonna learn it. But maybe I mentioned that, but I certainly don't go into mitosis and meiosis anymore and the details of anaphase, because that's just gonna turn off students, right? Like, mm-hmm. wanna know it are gonna learn it. Students who wanna memorize the facts are gonna find ways to memorize it. But I think it's much more important for them to learn the narrative arc, the story of human origins and why it matters versus the details that honestly, I forget. Like I, God bless the slides that remind me mm-hmm. how old random fossils are, because I don't remember. Now this is exactly, and I do the same thing in my, it's, it's called fundamentals of bioanth here at Notre Dame. Yeah, no, like meiosis, mitosis. You want to know how I teach that day of basic bio in my class? They do quote unquote biology beer pong. Well, at least in the before times before pandemic where there's a cup with a candy bar and a question in it. And they have ping pong balls and quiz each other on that basic bio stuff. And they know they're not gonna be tested on it but it's just to like remind them of these processes that are part of it. Anyways, we so look forward to the paper you're working on with Katie Hind, as well Mm -hmm. as the one with Susan Bloom, because I think these are really important things that we need to be talking about more in the open. And again, thank you for always being willing to share those experiences and your knowledge. But anyway, our final question, the fun question, what do you do for fun in your (laughs) spare time? We know you have two kids and a dog who is fairly new to the family, but what other fun nuggets about yourself can you share? So someone who's listening to your show, I tried to prepare for this question and then I forgot about the final question being the fun question. Yeah, I think having fun is really important. I always do this activity in class when before times where we spend time talking about like time affluence and the fact that we value money over time, even though in theory there's infinite money, but not infinite time. And then I have them write down, you know, what would you do if you had an hour of free time for yourself, not about school, not about work, not doing the dishes, what would you do? They write it down, we talk about it in this like 70 person class. And then I say, hey, look, this class is 75 minutes long. You all are free to go, go do that thing you said you were gonna do, like read the magazine, go for a hike, you know, whatever. Because I think it's really important, right? I say that with the caveat that I know it's important, but also I'm really bad at doing it myself. With yeah, the two kids and the dog, on the rare occasions I have moments to myself, I do like to read um, non-anthropology books. I'm a big fan of Louise Penny, who writes Two Pines mystery novels. I, I recommend them because it's not just about like who was killed, but why were they killed? And the other thing I will admit to that I've been more open about in the past, I used to hide, is that Before I was an anthropologist, I was a professional magician. And now that my kids are older, I'm sort of getting back into that. So like, you know, having some time to like, remember how to do card tricks and that kind of stuff. We need a conference talent show at the HBAs or AAPAs. So back in 20 something, I don't remember when it was, the AAPAs had a talent show. And unfortunately, my friend outed to Karen Rosenberg that I could do magic. And I got roped into doing it. Now, I, don't, I didn't even know anyone at the time. So like, I do remember though, that the person before me was Augustine Fuentes, who I not met, but I didn't even know him. And he showed one of his and his wife's films. But yeah, that was my, that's my sort of hobby. And there's actually more than one anthropologist out there. Lee Berger does magic. 
uh, Charles Roseman, the quantitative geneticist, does magic too. That well. doesn't surprise me. For some reason, Charles Roseman doing magic makes perfect sense to me. He broke his leg when he was in Calgary and couldn't go hiking. So he had to do magic. So we bonded over that and about like, you know, talking Genetics. About Genetics. <laughs> and all the crazy math equations that Charles Roseman uses. No, we totally need to bring back that talent show whenever we're able to physically be together again at a conference, as well as a meat smoking contest, because that <laughs> seems to be something that like, what, 50% of our interviewees do. They all love barbecue and smoking meat. I think they bring it up because we're called the sausage of science. And well, we it brings it out. It's a good thing. But now <laughs> we've learned so many people do it for fun. I'll also say, if you don't want the talent show, anyone listening to this, if like, you know, two years we're finally able to meet, and you have like a poker group that you want to play in, like, let me know. You pull cards out of your sleeve, you cheater. Oh, definitely I'll cheat, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll split the winning 60-40 with them. This, this is what we all did before Among Us and being stuck on the internet. So uh, <laughs> one day soon, we'll be back in person. We will smoke the meats, Mark will do magic, and the rest <laughs> of us will play poker. I can make balloon animals. That can be my contribution here. I can make a dog and a giraffe, which is kind of the same thing. It pretty much, yeah. I can do a ladybug bracelet, which is pretty cool. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I've got like so, three things in my repertoire. Speaking <laughs> of balloon animals, thank you, Mark, for, I don't know where that <laughs> transition came from. That's The transition was, we need to end this now. <laughs> but anyway, Mark, it is it has been a delight to have you on the show as a person who, again, has come up over and over and over again. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time because I know you are busy and have a lot going on. I, I, I will admit, I don't often listen to podcasts because I don't have the time, but I've always loved yours. And I was kind of like shocked to be invited because I see all these big names showing up. I kick when like someone says my name, like, ooh. But yeah, um, it was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Thank you.